You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You, every one of you, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I ask you now, Lord, that you would open our hearts, open our minds. Would you help us to be aware of your presence that's all around? And for the next few moments as we open up the scriptures, would you open up our hearts? Would you allow, allow these words to read us and transform us? We ask it in the great name of Christ. Amen. So I recently heard of a young man who went to a convenience store to buy a cup of coffee. He went to the cashier, took out a $5 bill, paid for the coffee that he'd purchased, and as the cashier returned his change, she looked at him and said, Sir, you have a nice day. And he looked back at her and said, Sorry, but I have other plans, and stomped out. We all have these things swirling around inside of us. Thoughts, emotions, feelings, memories. We have this inner life, and there's only two people that truly know that place. Me and God. See, eventually, who we are naturally comes out. What's formed in you eventually comes out to those around you. And I I don't always like what comes out of me. And yet at the same time, I give expression to those things, to all those around me. Jesus had a lot to say about this. The central message of, of Jesus was this idea that he called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God not being just a place we go after we die, but it's the place where God God rules, where God reigns, where what God wants done gets done. Where what God wants to happen, happens. The kingdom of God is something that's formed in us, but it's also expressed through us. When we turn to the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, The Sermon on the Mount is the largest collection of Jesus' teachings, and some of them are hard, right? Some of them are are, are difficult. When we come to verse 13, Jesus starts to talk about some very simple things, salt and light, and says, here's how you express the kingdom of God in the world. Go and be salt, go and be light. 
This weekend, we kick off Operation Love Your Neighbor, which is our annual emphasis, in which we share God's love in some really practical ways in our our community. But it's not just an event. I I hope it's a reflection in in some small way of of who we are. Because see, when I think about what's most important, when I think about first things, to me, the most important thing about this church is not that we fill seats. It's not who we get in the doors. It's not that we make budget numbers. It's not that we have cool programs. All of those are fine and good. But what's most important is that we be a place in which we become compelling followers of Christ. What does that even mean, to be a compelling follower of Christ? Or what does it even mean to, to live like a Christian? They're all kinds of people that have all kinds of ideas what that actually means. And some of them are quite extreme. Like if you think of the folks over in Kansas at Westboro Baptist Church, they're the ones that picket military funerals with vulgar signs and harsh words. They think that's what it means to live like a Christian. I have a friend who thinks to live like a Christian, you have to speak about Jesus to every single stranger that you meet. He tells me, Mike, every time you get on an airplane, you need to talk to, G- to the person sitting next to you about Jesus. And I say, man, when I get on an airplane, I want to put in my noise-canceling headphones and I want everyone to leave me alone. So am I not a good Christian? I was a part of a church in which to be a good Christian meant you were there every single time the door was open. And it was open Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. And you always wore a suit. Others believe it's you, you got to get in people's face, stand up for what's right and tell others how wrong they are. And yet Jesus has already showed us what it means to be a compelling follower of Christ, to live like a Christian. And it has nothing to do with, with suits or signs and everything to do with salt and light. Living like a Christian is expressing the kingdom of God, which has already been formed in me. Therefore, it is impossible to live the norms of the kingdom of God in a purely private way. I mean, it's so easy to say, well, my faith, my faith is a private faith. Well, not really, because who I am eventually comes out. And so Jesus reminds us that we are expressions of his kingdom on earth. And the two metaphors that he uses to describe that expression are two common realities, salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. So go be salty. Now, you, you can be the wrong kind of salty, right? Because the, the Urban Dictionary, if you type in salty, it means something very different than what Jesus had in mind. But see, when Jesus said, go and be the salt of the earth, it was not something you do as much as it's something that you are. And honestly, salt's pretty ordinary. There are like 14,000 different uses for salt. We all know what salt is. Some of us know what it is a little too well. And we've interacted with salt in the last few minutes because when you take communion, well, you took something that had salt in it. When I go to a Mexican restaurant and I get my basket of chips, I take my own salt shaker and I salt every single chip. And I know it's bad for you. Don't write me notes about how bad. I know it's bad, but I like it. I like to go to Cedarburg to Amy's and get salted caramel apples. Come on, you know that's good. Oh. 
Today I'll walk down into my basement and put salt in my water softener. And in just a few weeks, we'll be spreading salt all over the roads and sidewalks and driveways. Salt is everywhere. I've heard sermons and probably given sermons on this passage for 30 years. And I've heard the metaphor broken down in all kinds of ways. You're salt because salt has flavor. Salt is seasoning. So go be the seasoning of the earth. I've heard, well, in Jesus' day, salt was a preservative. So go be a preservative in the world. But what was it that Jesus was referencing? Because I don't think he had table salt in mind. Jesus didn't say you are the salt of the food. He said you're the salt of the earth. That phrase, the salt of the earth, is used to describe good, honest, humble, hardworking people. That guy, he's the salt of the earth. The Rolling Stones have a song called The Salt of the Earth. And the most common use of salt that I know is for food. But in Jesus' day, it was used for all kinds of things. It was indeed used for flavoring, but also for preserving meat so it wouldn't rot. Remember, no refrigeration. Salt was added to sacrifices in the temple. Salt was even used to destroy. When a conquering army would destroy a people group, they would take tons of salt and spread it all over their land so everything would die. And so, yes, salt was used for flavoring, preserving, sacrificing, destroying, but it was also used as a fertilizer. That feels like an earthy use. There are ancient civilizations that used small amounts of salt as fertilizer in the soil, and there are some farmers that do today as well. In the Philippines, it's used to grow coconut trees. So maybe, so maybe what Jesus meant is, you are the fertilizer of the earth. You go to those conditions that are a bit rocky and choppy and, and bring something good. See, when, when Jesus used that, that metaphor, you are the salt of the earth, what I think he meant outside of all the analogies we could create, salt is useful and it makes things better. So go be useful and go make things better. I mean, as a fertilizer, fertilizer generates growth, it enriches the environment, it makes it better. I want to be useful for Christ. And so if I'm salt, I'm the dynamic that makes things better. So the question I ask myself is, when I'm involved, are things better? Like when you're at work and someone finds out that you're going to be on their team, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Do you make things better or not? Or when I'm volunteering at my kid's school and the other parents find out I'm going to be a chaperone on the trip, is that a good thing or is that not a good thing? Jesus even said that salt can actually lose its usefulness. It can lose its purpose. It, of course, can be diluted. And as Jesus talked about salt, again, I don't think he was talking about table salt. I would think he was talking about a salt that's a bit more unstable that can dis- disintegrate and become, well, useless. The literal translation of salt loses its saltiness is it becomes foolish. It becomes diluted by the influences around us. There are lots of things that dilute our saltiness. I mean, legalism certainly dilutes our saltiness. And judgmentalism, well, that dilutes our saltiness. Moralism, that, that dilutes our saltiness. Our, our carnal desires can dilute our saltiness. Our crass, sarcastic, hurtful words, that certainly dilutes our saltiness. And when Jesus talks about salt losing his saltiness, He's not even nice about it. 
Like, we're used to the nice, polite Jesus. That's the Jesus that I prefer. But every once in a while, Jesus himself gets a little salty and not the kind he was talking about. This is what he says. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It's, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, if you lose your saltiness, you're basically useless, at least in the kingdom. Like, ouch, Jesus. Those are some strong words. When we move into the epistles, the salt metaphor follows. The apostle Paul writes in the book of Colossians chapter 4, let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. When something is properly seasoned, like it's pleasant, it's good, it enhances. Not enough salt, too bland, too much salt, gross. As many of you know, I grew up in in Buffalo, New York, and one of the staples on our diet is a sandwich called a beef on weck. I've got a picture of it. You can't get them anywhere but there. I've never seen them anywhere at Buffalo. It's a Buffalo tradition. And a beef on weck is basically a roast beef sandwich on a bun called a weck. And the weck is completely coated on the top in salt. Now, as a Buffalonian, I'm supposed to love this sandwich. But when I get it, I have to scrape some of the salt off because it is so salty. Like Sometimes, sometimes too much is too much. And I'm the guy that salts his chips. And that's salty. Sometimes you can be too salty. The amount matters. When something is too salty, you gag. When I got a sore throat as a kid, my mom tried to get me to gargle with salt water and I could just never do it because it made me... (laughs) So am I the expression of God that makes things better? Or do I make people gag? You're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. I mean, light light illuminates, right? The nation of Israel considered God, Yahweh, their guiding light. Psalm 119, God, God is our light. Now, interestingly, the Roman Empire also called themselves the light of the world. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. You, you're the light of the world. So go illuminate because there are some dark things in this world. Again, light's not something you do. Light is something that you are. Go illuminate. And I was like, in kindergarten, I have a brother that's a year younger than me. We shared a room. And we get up very early in the morning, always before my parents, because we wanted to watch cartoons. When cartoons was like, you had to get up at a certain time. Like, it wasn't on demand. It was turn the dial to the channel to get the cartoons at the right time. So we get up, and our bedroom was upstairs. So we get to the foot of the stairs, and we look down into the darkness, and we both just sit on the edge of the stairs and we would have to decide who was going to go downstairs and turn on the lights. Because there's creepy things down there. You don't know what crawls around in the dark, in the dark corners. And we'd negotiate, and I would always say, I'm the oldest, get down there and turn those lights on. Because light helps us see things as they are. And when those lights turned on, we were reminded, oh, it's not scary, it's our living room. There's a couch and a television and... C.S. Lewis once wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, 
but because by it I see everything else. Go illuminate truth, light, God's goodness. Because the, the right kind of light brings comfort. There's nothing better than sitting in my, my den in my home on a cold winter evening with my dog at my feet, and I just turn on a lamp with that soft glow. Because some light's harsh. Like, you know, you go into a gym, especially an old gym, and it's that harsh light that takes like an hour to turn on, and it just makes everything look like it turns your lips purple. It's weird. I'm not talking about that kind of light. I'm talking about that warm light that illuminates, that gives light to everything in the house. It helps us see. And again, the amount does matter. Because too much light's not a good thing. I, I did this, this home defense thing a while back, and the guy was, that was teaching was talking about tactical flashlights. How those are great because you can, you know, if you want to defend yourself, you can shine it in someone's face, it blinds them, and then, you know, and I'm like, but does a flashlight really work? And so I was at Bass Pro Shop in Springfield, Missouri, and I found the tactical flashlights, and I, thought, do these work? So I found one with 3,000 lumens and shined it in my own face. They work. (laughs) Too much light is not a good thing. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. See, in the first century, shortly after Jesus rose from the dead, those, those group of followers, they were never asked if they were Christians. They were accused of it. It was illegal. And people knew, simply by the way that they lived, those people are followers of Jesus. I mean, it was self-evident. They didn't withdraw into cloisters, and they didn't try to control everything. They were a faithful presence in the world. They didn't panic when culture went crazy, and they didn't see themselves as supreme. They simply represented Christ in a way that honored him. They were a non-anxious, cheerful, humble, stabilizing, confident presence in the world. And this disorderly, seemingly motley group of people, they, cha- they literally changed the whole world. In the book, The Triumph of Christianity, the author writes this. Christianity not only took over an empire, it radically altered the lives of those living in it. It was a revolution that affected government practices, legislation, art, literature, music, philosophy, and on the even more fundamental letter, the very understanding of billions of people about what it means to be human. However one evaluates the merits of the case, whether the Christianization of the West was a triumph to be treasured or a defeat to be lamented, no one can deny it was the most monumental cultural transformation the world has ever seen. And it happened because a small group of people knew who they were, and they knew their mission, they knew their calling to be salt and light. They they were salt and light in a fairly evil Roman Empire. See, in the Roman Empire in the first century, when these believers walked the earth, there was a practice called infanticide in which a family, if they were to give birth to a a child they did not want or it was the wrong gender, they would simply take the child to the trash heap and throw it out or leave it in the street to die of the elements, and it was completely legal under Roman law. But the Christians, who had a high value of human life, would go into the streets, into the garbage dumps, and take those children, bring them into their homes, and raise them as their own. Because they were on mission, because they were salt, and they were light. They didn't go into the streets and preach about the value of life. They did something about it. 
And when the bubonic plague struck in the Middle Ages, while people were fleeing cities because of fear of death, fear of getting sick and dying, like the hundreds of thousands that did, the Christians are the ones that stayed in the cities and took care of the sick at risk of their own life because they knew. They knew it was so much bigger than them. That they were called to care for human beings created in God's image and God's likeness. See, when Christians were in the world, they made things better. Jordan Peterson writes this about Christianity. The society produced by Christianity was far less barbaric than the pagan Roman Empire it replaced. It objected to infanticide, to prostitution, and to the principle that might means right. It insisted that women are as valuable as men. It demanded that even a society's enemies be regarded as human. All of this was asking the impossible, but it happened because they were salt and light. It was self-evident. They gave real-world expression to their faith, and it captured the intention of the entire world. And we are descendants of that movement. And yet I wonder, are we in a bit of a crisis as the Western church? And are we too distracted to notice? Have we lost sight of our mission? Because our mission isn't to fight society. Our mission is to make disciples. And if we are, and dare I say, at hope of not offending somebody, that when I'm more concerned about saving America than seeing Americans saved, we're in a crisis. Our job is not to fight society. Our job is to make compelling followers of Christ, to make disciples. When my faith is a convenience, we're in a crisis. And when my behavior does not align with my belief, we are certainly in a crisis. And so today, believers, my hope is that I can inspire us all, myself included, to act like I'm a believer. See, the first century church wrote a compelling story, and it transformed the world. There are very few things that transform the world. Christianity transformed the whole world. Are we, as descendants of that movement, going to write a story that we would be proud of, that Jesus would celebrate? Are we going to be salt and light? This week, we kick off Operation Love Your Neighbor, and there are just a few small opportunities in this little brochure that give us a chance to spread a little salt and give a little light. But see, it's not just an event. It's who we are. It's who we're called to be. And so I want to end today with a prayer from St. Teresa of Avila. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassionately on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. Yours are his body. Christ has no body now on earth 